<clears throat> so looking at uh, Romans 5. Apologies for the, it was a misprint. There was a pity. It was a typing area, error in the last song. Word of the Father, I'm sure it should have read. Uh, so it's Romans 5. Uh, in Luke 22, uh, Jesus tells Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. And when you turn back, when you come through it, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Satan has asked to sift you. Why didn't Jesus say, Satan has asked, but I've said, no way, don't touch him. No, Jesus didn't say that, did he? What he said was that Satan has asked and he's going to sift you, but I've prayed that he wouldn't fail. And there's a purpose in it. When you come back, when you come through it, you're going to be much stronger. And you're going to go back and you'll be a great help to your brothers and sisters. Well, my title from Romans 5 is Hope is Not Everything. And I've got the title uh, from something that Ricky Gervais has started uh, uh, sponsoring park benches. He's uh, working with some anti-suicide charity. Very highly commendable what Ricky's doing. But on these park benches, then, is hope is everything. Well, my title is hope is not everything. Though I, you know, I uh, appreciate what uh, Ricky is trying to do. He's a strange mix, Ricky Gervais. He can be caustic in the extreme, but he can be caring. He's a thinker. He thinks deeply. But unfortunately, 1 Corinthians 2 reminds us that the person without the Holy Spirit cannot, is unable, will not, cannot see reality, cannot see really what's going on. It seems when you talk about God to such people, it seems foolish, stupid, ridiculous. And therefore, poor old Ricky cannot understand the reality of uh, the physical and the spiritual nature of our universe. He cannot, because these mysteries are spiritually discovered, spiritually discerned. Now, <clears throat> uh, there's a lot about hope, though it isn't everything. There's a lot about hope in this message, and there's a lot about rejoicing in this message. And I want to look at those three instances. First of all, in verse 1, we, uh, verse two, sorry, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, there's a film John Cleese made in the late 80s, I think. I just become a Christian, I think, clockwise it was called. And there's a quote in it, which I'm probably not going to get right, but I get the gist of it, where he's had some huge disappointment. And he says, it's, it's not the despair, it's the hope. I remember when I first heard it, I thought, I think I know what he's talking about. Here's, here's some situation, and Ben comes along. Ben's a lovely guy, very gregarious, warm, friendly guy. And uh, he, he tells me now, he gives me some great advice, and he tells me that he knows if I follow this advice, this will happen, and so on. And uh, he really builds my hopes up. And, of course, what happens then in a few weeks or a few months' time is it all comes crashing down. It all goes pear-shaped. And now... The fact that the hope, you know, I was built up so high, well, the despair now is even worse. And, you know, it, the disappointment is only aggravated, much more painful because of the hope. I remember David Steele, somebody who don't even know who he is. 
Uh, he was leader of the Liberal Party when it was a Liberal Party called the Lib Dems and so on. Uh, leader of the Liberal Party. I remember some party conference a few weeks before the general election, and he gives this rousing speech, and he tells the Liberals they're on the march. And I remember the final words: "Go back to your constituencies and prepare for government." And they all went, I dare say, ten foot tall, back to their constituencies. But when the election came, they were absolutely trounced. They were hammered, and all that euphoric going back to your constituencies only made the disappointment worse. Now, the apostle is not talking about that kind of thing that we all know about. We've all had somebody build our hopes up, promise something, and then it all comes crashing down. He's not talking about it. He's not getting excited about something that might not occur. He's talking about Christian hope. We have a hope that is steadfast and certain, gone through the curtain, referring to the old temple we had this morning in the Old Testament, gone through the curtain and touching the throne. We have a hope that is guaranteed, fixed, because it's attached. At the other end of the rope is the Lord Jesus Christ, so guaranteed. So it can't fail because God's promised and God cannot lie. He cannot break his promises. Now, that's a, such a shock when you, it's not just the politicians, let's be honest. They, you know, what are we like? We all we all break our promises. We all let the other people down. We're such a disappointment. We tell the odd little fib, or maybe we tell a whopping lie, whatever you want to, however you want to grade it. But here's the shock, because the Lord doesn't ever do that. What he says is true. It's like an anchor fixed in heaven, this hope. And that's the hope he's talking about. And therefore, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I can't remember the last time I used the word rejoice in ordinary conversation. I don't know if you do. It's not a word I don't, I can't remember ever using the word in ever, everyday conversation. But I've used the word thrilled. And in, I think in the last song, was it thrilled with his goodness? So that I understand that. Or delighted. Or I'm over the moon. Or you see tennis players, if Emma Raducanu ever wins a big match again, she does this kind of fist like that when she really does well and she's excited. You know, Ecstatic, euphoric, uh, you know, we know we understand. Or some versions of I read in the NIV. Uh, some other versions use glory or boast for rejoice. They all mean, you know, we we understand. Or extol, I think, was in the last song. We understand what those words mean. Those synonyms. They all mean the same thing, and we understand what that thing is. And Paul says that Christians rejoice in this cast iron guarantee of the hope of the glory of God. Now, there's lots to think about tonight, and you really shouldn't need me afterwards to talk about these things because, you know, they've got the glory of God, we've got hope. There's so much in it, and I'm, I'm really just going to cover this as quickly as I can uh, from my heart and, and trust that you will really benefit and think about these things yourself then. See, we got some insight as to what glory of God means, the heaviness the full weight of his majesty, the full effect. We got some clue, but we're not there yet. Are we? But one day, one day, we will see him as he is. But even now, we rejoice in the hope of that wonderful, magnificent, supernatural experience of seeing him as he is. We rejoice in the hope 
of the glory of God. Next up is the following verse. And this, well, what can you say? That's why I picked the, the Graham Kendrick one. I, you know, it's not the best song. I don't think he ever, he ever wrote. But um, though trials will come, you know, that's why I picked it really. And consider it joy. Now, next up is the following verse. We rejoice in our suffering. I heard a preacher say a couple of weeks ago, um, now, when a Christian rejoices in suffering, the unbeliever marvels at this and is greatly impressed. Now, that may well be true and it may well be possible. But I was thinking back when I was an unbeliever, I think if somebody had rejoiced in their suffering in my presence, I think I would have thought they were mad, sort of uh, miserably masochistic, stoic. But nevertheless, we are told here that we should boast in our sufferings. We should glory in our struggles. We should delight in our stresses. Have you got stress in your life? Ever struggled? Ever had been through a tough time? Perhaps you're in a tough time now, perhaps every day at the moment. It is stressful. To be honest, doesn't that sound weird? Rejoice in your stresses. It's a bit like the monks, you know, in the Middle Ages, lying on the floor and having somebody come in twice a week and whip them, isn't it? You know, just think, whoa, hang on now. But the apostle tells us clearly why we are to rejoice in our suffering. Because all the time our suffering is being supervised, overseen, by Almighty God, who has an aim, and the aim is not to suffer. Just like Jesus saying to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. Now, I'm going to let him sift you like wheat, and it's going to be really tough. But I have an aim, not that you be sifted like wheat. That's not the aim. I have an aim that you come through this much stronger, and then you can help others. And we realize that later Peter was wonderfully used, wasn't he? Because he'd come through the suffering. So, God has a name. And often when tough times come, I think when Christians pray, and certainly non-Christians sometimes pray when tough times come, and they basically saying, um, uh, how can I get out of this? Whereas I think the Lord wants us to ask, what can I get out of this? What can I learn? How can I benefit spiritually from this tough situation? But the Lord tells us here, well, uh, we rejoice in our suffering. Why? Well, it produces something. What? Perseverance. <clears throat> Trials come, we trust God, or we throw in the tower. If we trust God, we find that we can persevere to trust God more, and so on. And perseverance produces character. What I am is better than it was. What I am, not my reputation now. My reputation is a lot of show in it, what I, how I come across to you. But the car my character, what I really am, and what God knows I am. And then the character produces hope. Well, we're back around to hope again because hope is vital because it fuels my Christian life and all the trials that are designed by God to fuel my hope so that I go, grow in grace and in love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I will, if somebody asks me then, when I come through this, do you love the Lord? I can honestly say, oh, I do love him because and I love him more than I did before. So all our stresses and struggles are designed to strengthen this hope, to fuel my hope. I boast, I glory. Here's the th third one now in verse 11. I boast, I glory, I am thrilled, I'm delighted, whatever words you want to put in, in God. 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, who's reconciled me. Uh, I read a quote, I can't remember when I read it now, but I put it in a book somewhere. So it was a few years ago. Um, somebody had written, a preacher had written, uh, the bulk of Christians in our land, Wales, UK, the bulk of Christians are apparently not thrilled by the gospel. Well, I won't labour the point. You, you know my view on that. I say it just about every week. I think it's if, if that is true, and I think it is true, it's because we haven't seen our sin and therefore we don't marvel at the cross. We're not amazed at grace. But I won't say any more about that uh, because I hammer it every week, I suppose. Um, somebody said last Wednesday, very helpfully, that there are times when they don't love the Lord and uh, basically they don't really care much about it at that particular instance. And I suppose most of us perhaps would have to say recently that we've been there. Or if not recently, then sometime or other. Now, Robert Murray McShane, one of the godliest men who, who ever preached the gospel, he died at 29 of TB. Uh, he used to, I remember reading his book, and he would say about Monday mornings in his diary, all oh, these lifeless Monday mornings. Now, what he meant was he, he perhaps been blessed on the Sunday evening, preaching the night before. Now it was Monday morning, he gets up out of bed, and it feels spiritually lifeless. But the point was this, McShane cared, though, that it was lifeless. He knew it was lifeless, and it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. Now, are you there? F.B. Meyer, again, um, a bit later than, uh, than McShane, the tail end of uh, the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, God's unutterable grief, not at the world's iniquity, but at the church's indifference. In other words, when we sort of say, well, yeah, I don't feel much love for Jesus. I feel a bit cold towards him. I can't be bothered to do this. I can't be bothered to pray. I can't be bothered to read my Bible or whatever it is. And it doesn't bother me. You know, F.B. Meyer is saying this is, this is really bad. This hurts the Lord, grieves the Lord. He sees our tears. And we want him to. We say, well, Lord, well, look, look what's happening. But we, of course, we can't see his tears. That's the point F.B. Meyer is making. So poor old Ricky Gervais, well-meaning, but he's wrong. Hope is not everything. Hope can be an airy, fairy, nebulous, vague, cross fingers, touch wood sort of thing. But Hebrews 6, which starts off, I think, one of the most terrifying chapters in the whole Bible, near the end, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm, and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Now that there's there's the guarantee. Isn't it? Hope is only everything if it's in Jesus, if it's fixed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And th that is true for every Christian that our hope is fixed to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether we're aware of it or not. That is a fact. Every Christian, there are, there are no uh, you know, a, a star grades uh, and E grades. You know, when it comes to being a Christian, you are either saved or you're not. And if you're justified, it's not a sliding scale. You're justified by faith. And therefore, we all drink from the same spirit, as I mentioned earlier from 1 Corinthians 
12, and therefore Christ is everything. The darling of heaven, crucified. They said of the Puritan Richard Sibbs, heaven was in him long before he was in heaven. That's what Paul means. That's what he's aiming at when he talks about this hope. Are you with me? Interested? Now, I read, uh, I listened to a sermon last week, and the preacher, the first half of the sermon was great. And then he's in, so, and there was application in, so get involved, be expectant, pray for your pastor, come to the prayer meeting. And I was thinking, no, 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 you're, you're missing the whole point. It's a heart thing. It's not, it's not point in telling people, get involved, get excited, be expectant, come to church. But they're not excited, they're not expectant, they need their hearts warmed. Or they need their hearts, they need to be saved first, whatever. You know, I remember reading tours in the old days. And uh, he says, here's a new convert, and we give them tasks. We say, well, get involved in this toddler's look. Get involved in the youth. Get involved in the children's work. Get involved in delivering food parcels. Get involved in this and that and so on. And he said, but the first thing they need to do as a new convert is learn to worship before they can work. I think he's spot on. You, if you were wor- you're a worshiper, you'll want to work. But the other way around, any, anybody can get on with the work, can't they? When you're amazed by the grace of the Lord Jesus, amazed that you're saved, you marvel. Why am I saved? Why are you saved? Why are you not in hell tonight? When you're amazed by these things, then you will want to serve the Lord. So again, you've probably got, well, I, I, I hope anyway, that you've got lots to think about and lots to raise afterwards, either with with your friends or with each other or, you know, formally on here. So where are you in all this now? In the 18th century, Daniel Rowland was mightily used of God in the revival. And uh, on a Sunday morning, people would have walked for miles. And they'd be coming over the hill to San where he was preaching. They'd walked for hours and hours and hours. Sometimes he'd look through his window and he'd say, here they come, bringing heaven with them. Wouldn't it be tremendous if we all turned up on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, bringing heaven with us? See, in the first 18 months of my Christian life, I would say uh, I was mostly drowning. I was helped by one or two Christians face to face. I was helped by five or six more via tapes and books. And um, one of them was definitely Toza. And some of the things I read then, I'm going back now 33 and 33, yeah, 33 years or thereabouts. Some of what I read then hit me like a sledgehammer, and I, I can still more or less quote some of it now. On Psalm 25, which says, uh, the Lord confides in those who fear him. Tozer wrote, God tells the man who cares. I just thought, that's it. If I, there was me struggling. Did I care that I was struggling? Well, a bit. But he said, and he was making the point, oh, God speaks to those who want to listen, who take the time to listen to him. He doesn't, you know, Tozer went on to say, God has nothing to say to the frivolous man. In other words, if you're not really interested, 
with the Lord, he's not going to waste his energy on it. And so you've got to see the, the crisis, haven't you? See the, the desperate situation you're in. Then his book, Whatever Happened to Worship, was an absolute lifeline. A lifeline I saw so much of what was going on around me, so much that was wrong. And then I saw that I was, I had basically been happy to dip my big toe in the ocean of his love when he wanted me to swim. When the Lord was saying, what are you doing? You're just, you're happy now. You, you, can, you can say that you, you, you've been, been to, to the ocean and you've dipped your toe in and now you're going home. And you say, no, I want, you to, I want you to wade in. I want you to paddle. I want you to wade. I want you to start swimming in the ocean of my love. And, you know, and he made the point, if you, if you want, if you'd quite like to hear God speak, then chances are he's not going to speak much to you. He speaks to those who want to hear him. And if that's not you, well, then you need, really need to take it seriously and ask yourself, why is it not you? And, you know, are you in danger of going to hell yourself then? And you know, sit down and have a, a crisis meeting before God. You know, as he, he said, if you can carry on nicely without the Holy Spirit, then you will. That's the point. You will carry on nicely without the Holy Spirit. You won't get anywhere. Well, you might enjoy church, right? And you might have lovely pals here and on Facebook and you might enjoy the song, but you won't get anywhere. Again, we, we all think, but we don't all think enough. We don't all think well enough. We don't all think deeply enough. You know, I read a, a sermon on, on the rejoicing in suffering a few, weeks, a few weeks ago now, and the guy was saying something like this. Uh, you know, we rejoice in our suffering, so I say to God, bring it on. And I just thought, are you insane? Do you really think that this is what Paul is saying? That we just say to God, bring it on? I thought of Johnny Erickson straight away. She never said, bring it on. And she's been wonderfully used. And she's gone through terrible trauma, and she? The last 50, 50 odd years. But she's an example of spiritual reality and honesty in it, isn't she? You'll not come close to rejoicing in struggles or stresses until you see deep down you need to change. Deep down, you need serious spiritual surgery. That's when the, the patient is gripped to what the, the doctor is saying when they think it might be serious. Well, it is serious. Then, when you come through that, you'll begin to see how marvellous it is. How wonderful, how marvellous. And my song shall ever be. Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice the Son of God given for me. And you move away from lifeless, loveless worship into levels of reality. Perhaps you've only read about before. But they'd be yours. And you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ who has reconciled you. See, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 is thrilled by the truth, the Son of God who loved me. Now, there's enough for a revolution to know Jesus loves me. He loves me. The Son of God who loves me, says Paul, and gave himself for me. 
You know, there's a verse I read this week in uh, a bit of a verse in Psalm 57. He sends from heaven and saves me. Just thinking, he sends from heaven and saves me. Just thinking, here's, um, here's doubting Debbie in, in church, say. Um, she's sitting listening to a sermon, and, uh, you know, she hasn't taken much notice, but she decides to listen. She really decides to listen, maybe for the first time. Maybe she's so bored that she's decided, I tell you what, I, I can't cope with this boredom. I'm actually going to listen for a change. And she, she begins to see a need. And she prays a simple prayer. And she's not aware of angels singing. She's not aware of violins playing. She's not a, aware of wonderful changes in the, in the uh, aura around her or whatever. She just prayed a simple prayer that the Lord would come into her life and save her. And the Lord has saved her. But she, she's not aware of it yet. See, unknown to her, what has gone on? Unknown to her, the greatest miracle possible has happened. He is sent from heaven and saved her. And there was a night, happened to be in 1988 for me, when the Lord did that. He sent from heaven. Nobody knew who was sitting around me. He was sent, and I certainly didn't know. He was sending from heaven to save me. Isaiah 25, this is our God. We trusted in him. What did he do? He saved us. He saved us. Last verse that thrilled me this week from Psalm 56. Simple, simple words. God is for me. God is for me. For me. Is he for you? If so. Do you rejoice? Are you thrilled with the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. Let's sing a song to finish.